Gentlemen, happy Thursday morning to you. We'd love to have any of you join us next week for our Holy Week services. As was mentioned, we'd uh, welcome you if you want to come. They're short 30-minute services, but this next week we're going to be looking at uh, the cross and uh, the meaning of the cross. And each day we'll have another aspect of the meaning of the cross, so I think you'll, you'll appreciate that if you come join us during your lunch hour. Hey, we just looked at a hymn. Why don't you put this back up on the board, uh, the, the words of the hymn. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Uh, it's, an, it's an address to, to sinners like ourselves. And it's a wonderful hymn, inviting us to come to the Lord in all of our woundedness, all of our poverty, all of our wretchedness. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. So he's got both pity for us and power to save us. Look at the next stanza. Come ye needy, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. So think about God's bounty. What is His bounty? Look at the next line. True belief and true repentance. Those are the gifts that He brings. So that's His bounty that He's bringing to you. Every grace that brings you near Him. And you come without money and simply come to Christ and buy. You come in salvation and you buy without money. And then look at this third stanza. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. <laughs> what's, what's the word there? You ain't getting any better. You're getting worse. So if you're going to wait till you get, you're on a downhill slide. And so if you're, you know, as a, as a fallen human being, if you wait until you're better, then no hope for you. You got to come before you get worse. And then you'll get better. Uh, when he gives you those gifts of true re- uh, belief and true repentance. It's a wonderful hymn. There are a couple of other stanzas we didn't sing, but uh, that one's worth learning. And that, the reason we sang is because today we want to talk about the nature of true repentance. And repentance is essential to salvation. Sometimes men will think, well, you know, uh, we just need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and with time, he'll give us the gift of repentance so that we turn from our sin and so on. But the fact is that Christian conversion is like a coin with two sides. One side of the coin is belief and the other side is repentance. They go together as surely as heads and tails goes together on a coin. You cannot separate the two. You can distinguish between the two, but you can't separate them. And what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. So true belief and true repentance are essential for salvation. Those are the two components of Christian conversion. The reason I say this is when you look in the Bible, you'll find that the apostles will sometimes use one and sometimes use the other in telling us what to do in order to come to Christ. For example, when Peter on the day of Pentecost is preaching, he just simply says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of your sins. So he doesn't even say believe. He just says, repent and be baptized. On the other hand, when Paul is answering the question of the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't mention repentance. Why? It's two you know, faces of the same coin. You can speak of it in either way, belief or repentance. They're two sides of the same event, which is conversion. So what we want to look at here in Paul's letter is how Paul is celebrating the fact that the Corinthians responded well to his third letter to them. Remember, uh, 1 Corinthians is actually his second letter. 
2 Corinthians is actually his fourth letter. This third letter in between was a very hard letter seeking to lead them to repentance because they had a dispute in their midst. They had a man who sinned against another man and the church wasn't doing anything about it. And Paul calls them all to repentance. And it was so hard that he worried about that letter later and whether it was too hard. And then when he gets news from Titus who had visited them, they actually repented. Man, uh, he is so joyful. And we'll see why he's so joyful. And we'll see why it was so important that the Corinthians repent. So in the midst of this historical narrative of Paul's relationship with this Corinthian church, we're learning all kinds of things. We've learned the heart of a Christian man from Paul as he lays his heart out there to the Corinthians. Now we're going to learn the heart of real Christian conversion because Paul is describing why he's so thankful because they have clearly repented. How can they tell they've clearly repented? Well, that's what we'll see. Paul sees in their response an authentic repentance. And it's very important for us to know what this is because the devil is always counterfeiting everything. He counterfeits belief. We've talked about that before. The nature of true belief is not just knowing the facts or assenting to the facts. It's actually trusting the facts, putting your weight on Christ. That's real belief. The devil will foist upon us all kinds of counterfeits, hoping that we'll take the counterfeit. Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe He's the Son of God. And think that that is conversion. It's not. True belief is resting in Christ, trusting in Christ, putting your your whole life in His hands. That's true belief. At the same time, there is a counterfeit repentance that is not real, biblical, saving repentance. And the devil would like for you to take that counterfeit pill knowing that it will send you straight to hell. So uh, he, he is an angel of light, as, as the Scripture says. And he is there to deceive us, Satan is, and will foist these counterfeits upon us. What we're going to see in this text is true repentance, the saving real deal. And we want to be sure that we all have it and our friends and family all have it. Well, with that in mind then, let's turn to chapter uh, uh, 7, verse 2 and pick up the story here as Paul continues to write to the Corinthians about his joy in getting the news from Titus about their turn. He says in verse 2, Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that uh, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. 
For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, not for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. Okay. Notice, first of all, in verses 2 and 3, that unrepentance brings bitter division. So when there is a lack of true repentance, we see all kinds of dysfunctions in the body of Christ. It's a very deadly thing to be unrepentant in the house of God. It has terrible consequences. First of all, notice when we're not repentant, we tend to uh, uh, falsely accuse godly men. Paul is having to defend himself here. They think the problem is with him. That he has wronged them. He has corrupted them. He has taken advantage of them. Paul says the problem is not with me. I have not wronged you. I have not wronged or corrupted anybody. And neither have I taken advantage of no one. Now, you remember, Paul refused to take any money from the Corinthians. He took money from the Philippians. And the reason was the Philippians developed more maturely. And he was able to instruct them on how important it is for them to give to the kingdom of God, including his own apostolic ministry. And they realized that that was a gift to God when they were promoting his ministry. So he received funds from them. But he never received funds from the Corinthians. Why? They were so doggone immature. And they would have interpreted their offerings to him as his manipulation of them or his speaking to them only to get money. And that's exactly what the super apostles did in Corinth, the ones they were tending to follow. Paul wanted nothing to do with that. So because of the corruption already in their hearts and in their community, he didn't allow them to support his ministry. He made tents on the side and supported himself. And Paul needed to be able to say to them, I didn't take advantage of you, and there are no grounds for you to even perceive that I took advantage of you. So, for example, if if we, uh, in our Presbyterian church, if we have someone go into a church that is broken down, that it's where the people are in strife with each other, where they've had conflict with the previous minister, where they don't trust the clergy, uh, the best thing for us to do is send a pastor in there and not have the people pay for his salary until they mature, until they repent. I've seen this over and over again. You... If you, if you go in to settle a dispute among unconverted church people, you need to go in with missionary money first and replant that church on the solid ground of the gospel. And then you give them the privilege of participating in the support of the Christian ministry. So that's the way Paul treated the Corinthians. They were an immature church. And he says, you should know. 
I didn't take advantage of any of you. But in your unrepentance, you tend to make false negative claims about other people. Now let me just ask you, anytime that you've dealt with someone who is in an unrepentant state, don't you get all kinds of blame shifting from those folks? Of course you do. That's exactly what you do. When you're not putting the blame on yourself, which is what repentance does, you accept full responsibility for what you did. Uh, until you do that, you're going to be blaming somebody else. When I get uh, some of my friends together with their wives, uh, I'm just talking about one couple at a time, and we're talking about their marriage that is conflicted. You know, when we start out, she's explaining everything about him that he doesn't do very well, and he's explaining all of his problems with her. By the time we finish, he's confessing all of his sins, and she's confessing all of her sins, and she's thanking him for what he does well, and he's thanking her. That's called conversion. So we, by nature, are always in an unrepentant state, and you can find it because people are always blame-shifting. And Paul knew that. These people were not in a converted state because they were blaming other people. And then look at verse 3, uh, B here, we foolishly misinterpret other people's love. Paul says, do I need to tell you this again? I'm not saying this to condemn you, but you guys are in our hearts. I die for you. I want to live with you. I want to die with you. We have a common destiny. You have my love. And yet you think I'm abusing you. And you find this, of course, I've mentioned a couple of texts here from, from uh, the wilderness experience where the people say to Moses, how many, how many days did they get out of slavery on their way into the promised land before they said, so Moses, you just brought us out here to kill us, didn't you? Yeah, and just think about all the flesh pots and wonderful food we had back there in Egypt. And they were blaming Moses. And then I mentioned another text in here in Numbers where even his brother and his sister rebel against him and say, Moses, who do you think you are? You're giving us the word of God. What makes you so special? And then Lord, the Lord shows them what makes Moses so special. Because he's the humblest man on the face of the earth. And God said, I don't speak to him like other men. I speak to him face to face. And God's the one who corrected uh, Miriam and Aaron. But Miriam and Aaron, his own siblings, rise up against Moses. Why? They were unrepentant. And I mentioned a text here, Matthew 25, verses 24 and 25. You remember that? The, the ones who were given the five talents, the two talents, the one talent. And the guy who had the one talent and hid it. And he says to the Lord, I knew you were a, a harsh taskmaster. And that you took where you hadn't given. You, in other words, you, you just wanted to use me. That was the reason he didn't give his talent or invest his talent. was because he thought the Lord was harsh and was just using him. That attitude, unrepentant attitude of not trusting the Lord in His kindness leads to all kinds of dysfunctions. We falsely accuse godly men. We even falsely accuse God Himself. And we foolish interpret, misinterpret the love of other people toward us. That's what unrepentance does. So we see the results of toxic, unrepentant behavior in our own hearts. Now secondly, look at verses 4-16, through 16, the, the main part of this text. And you see that true repentance brings comfort and joy. It does. The purpose of repentance is not to make you feel lousy. The purpose of repentance is to make you feel joyful and comforted and loved. There's a joy to repentance. If you really repent, you don't come out of your repentance feeling terrible. You come out of your repentance feeling joyful and relieved. So repentance gets rid of the burden. It doesn't... Uh, exacerbate the burden or exaggerate the burden. Now, first of all, our repentance comforts our brothers. It comforts other people. 
How so? Well, in verses 4 through 7, Paul shows us that their repentance restored his pride in them. And that's what happens. When we repent, it restores the pride of others in us as their brothers in Jesus Christ. Paul shows here how when he came into Macedonia, verses 4 and 5 there, that their bodies had no rest. They had come from Troas waiting for for Titus, and Titus didn't show up, so they go on past Troas to Macedonia. They're exhausted. They've had a very difficult time in Ephesus. They go to Troas, now to Macedonia. They're exhausted. They're wondering where Titus is. They don't know if maybe Titus had the offering from the Corinthians that was due the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Maybe he got uh, burglarized and assaulted. They, they had no idea what had happened. They were terribly worried. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. What a description of the apostolic sufferings. Fighting without, fear within. It's in one of our famous hymns that we sing. But he says, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. See how Paul puts it? That was God at work. It was God who brought Titus to us. Notice in Paul's life, this continual awareness of God's providence in every detail. Do you have that kind of mentality? Are you thinking about God who orders everything in the universe? Everything that's happening to you, it comes from the hand of God. Those things that are difficult for you, they come from the hand of God. Those things that are really joyful for you, they come at the hand of God. Paul was always aware of God's intimate involvement in providence in every moment of history and every event. And so he sees Titus really as a gift of God. And by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of, look at this now in verse 7, your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. So Titus saw real repentance because of their longing, that is their longing to be right with God, their longing to be reconciled with the apostolic message of Christ, their longing to be reconciled with Paul, and their mourning. There's a genuine mourning over sin in the midst of our repentance. And then their uh, uh, zeal for the apostle, that they did not want to cut the apostle out of their church, because if they did, they would cut Christ and the gospel out of their church. So Paul says, Titus saw all of these things in you. It was a Christ-centered repentance. And we and he were greatly comforted. So it comforts others when we repent. Let me just pause here for a moment. When we don't repent, we're basically upsetting the entire church. When we do repent, we're making a positive contribution to the life of the church. We'll get into more of this later. Paul describes it in greater detail. What we have to realize here is that your personal repentance is not just individually your own business. It's the business of the entire church. So if you remain unrepentant in any sin, if you belong to a church, it is that church's business. And as Americans who are very individualistic, we think of the church as sticking their nose in our business if they say anything to us about our personal sin or our personal unrepentance. No, that's the church's business. They should be afflicted if you're unrepentant. And it does afflict a healthy church. An unhealthy church won't notice because they don't care because they're an unhealthy church. But a healthy church will care and it afflicts them when you remain in unrepentance. And it brings great relief to the church and celebration when you repent. As Jesus said, the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. 
The angels in heaven are rejoicing and the church rejoices. So we're all in this together. Uh, I mentioned later here a text in Joshua chapter 7. Do you remember Achan, A-C-H-A-N? Achan, who took some of the gold that he wasn't supposed to take as spoil from the victory. It affected the whole camp. And they were all defeated by their enemies because of one sinner. What God is showing us in that text is you can't have one person who's out there unrepentant and then expect, expect God's blessing on the church. So if someone's unrepentant, we all have a stake in this. And there's going to be a removal of God's favor in a certain way when the church just sweeps it under the rug. That's what's being shown here. Paul has great comfort because he's invested, which leads us to the next point. It rewards the investment of other people in us. It rewards our brother's investment. He says, even if I made you grieve, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, because it grieved you only for a while. Here's what Paul is saying, that he's showing that we have a real investment in each other. When someone joins your church, you invest in them. When you join a church, that church invests in you, and you invest in them. I always tell our folks, you know, when you join Second Presbyterian Church, you invest in 3,500 people and their children. You've joined a huge family, and you may not know all of them, but you have just invested in them. And they have just invested in you, and now we're, we're connected spiritually. We're like, like Jesus says, He's the vine, we're the branches. We're all organically connected, and we are connected. You may, you may try to deny that you're connected, but you are connected whether you accept that reality or not. And so therefore, one person's behavior does affect another, just like it does in any family that loves each other. You know, we had seven people in our original family. Now we got a lot more than that. I mean, I'm sorry, we had, uh, yeah, seven. And now we got a lot more than that. And you can't tell me that something bad is happening to one of those members that I'm not a sad cabaruchi. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm carrying that burden. I carry burdens every day with folks in my family. Children, children-in-law, grandchildren. Every day, there's something on my mind that's a burden. And I, every day I'm comforted just like I was yesterday. Something goes well. Or someone sends me a little cute video, and I see you know, my grandchildren, that they're, they're cuter than yours. <laughs> and uh, every day, we're invested in each other. When you join the church, you join a family. And we're to cultivate that sense of carrying each other's burdens and rejoicing in each other's repentance and faith and the things that God is doing in our lives. And so Paul is saying that they rewarded his investment. Now notice how he puts this. He said, I made you grieve. Now look, when you're invested in someone, it doesn't make you happy to confront them about their sin. No, it grieves you. And you're trying to figure out, and I've, you know, I've talked to so many of you through the years who are wrestling about your involvement in another brother's life, a brother who may not be getting it just right, or who doesn't have his theology right, or who, who's uh, not walking with the Lord very closely, and how should I talk to him, and how far do I go, and that's what Paul goes through. Look at it. He said, it, it didn't grieve me to send you that letter, but oh yeah, it did grieve me actually, uh, but only for a little while. And then he says, the reason ultimately it didn't grieve me is because it led you to something good and it didn't cost you anything. It actually brought you something good. But look at the wrestling. Here's the Apostle Paul wrestling with himself saying, did I, was I too strong in my language? Was I unkind in any way? 
You see, when we become family, of course, that's one of the burdens you bear. How do I communicate the truth and try to lead my brother to repentance in a way that respects him as a human being and as a child of God? Paul's wrestling with the same thing. But notice that he makes the investment. He doesn't just say, well, that's going to ruin our friendship. I'm not going to say anything. He couldn't possibly say that because your salvation's at stake. So here's what a real investor does. A real investor in a healthy family is willing to lose his popularity with his family member in order to try to help them. But he doesn't unnecessarily offend them because he loves them. There's the balance. I do not unnecessarily offend. I do not take it as a personal offense. But on behalf of God, I plead with you and seek to help to point out the area of your life that needs repentance because I love you. Sometimes you get mad at me. Sometimes you... You say, I'm quitting that church, I'm going to another one. Well, you'll have to go on because love demands that we invest in each other. And when we repent, we're rewarding our investors. If someone sends you a little note and says, you know, just something I thought I'd point out, or someone takes you to lunch and confronts you on something, brothers, please do everything you can to search your own heart to agree with a person who's bringing something to you. You never confess for something you didn't do. That's, that's disingenuous. That's a lie. That's flattery. But do your best to bring up what you can confess and reward your investor. He's just invested in your life. You're a nutcase if you just push him away and shift the blame to him, like what they did in their unrepentant state. You're cutting off the avenue for God to bless you. You've got to reward your investor with your real repentance. That's the reason that your ready repentance is really important. To keep those mutually encouraging and repentant relationships going on in your life. Paul says, you all rewarded me. It grieved me. I was, up, you know, I was concerned about you. Uh, but uh, because you eventually grieved into repentance, uh, we rejoice. And he says, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. So he says... Yes, it grieved you that I confronted you, but it was a godly grief and so you didn't suffer loss. You, you, you experienced gain. So even if my popularity went down with you temporarily for just a little bit, you, you stood to gain greatly by that encounter. Now, that leads us into verses 10 and 11 where we see really, I think, the heart of this message on repentance. And this is primarily what we want to talk about this morning. And that is that our repentance sanctifies us. It not only comforts our brothers, but it sanctifies us. It draws us near the Lord. And that's the reason He gives us the gift. You can't draw near to the Lord if you still have your sword drawn out of the sheath and you're ready to to strike Him with it again. But when you put your sword back, your sin and wickedness, and you say, Lord, I'm yours, now you're going to be close to Him. That's what repentance does. It gets you close to the Lord. And you'll notice uh, in the verses that I put there just below B, Luke 3, 3, verse 7, and so on, Luke wrote Luke and Acts. And look at how Luke stresses repentance in all of those verses, a couple of which I've mentioned. But John the Baptist was preaching repentance. Jesus preached that we should repent. And he taught his disciples in Luke 24, 47 to go all around the world preaching forgiveness and repentance. So preach that God has forgiven us, but preach also that we must repent. 
which is one side of that two-sided coin of repentance and belief. And sure enough, a few days later, Peter is preaching, repent and be baptized, all of you, for the remission of your sins. And you'll see it all the way out to Acts 26.20 when Paul tells King Agrippa that he was told to take repentance to the Gentiles. Now let's stop for a minute and talk about repentance. There, the, the Hebrew word for repentance is shuv. You can spell that S-H-U-V. And the word shuv just means to turn. So repentance would be I'm walking this way following wickedness and then shuv. I turn and now I follow righteousness. The most common Greek word for repentance is, you've heard this in English before, metanoia. M-E-T-A-N-O-I-A, I suppose. Metanoia. And metanoia, a meta means change, noia means mind. So you change your mind. But it's not just merely a change of mind without connection to your affections or your will. It's actually a change of your whole being. Of course, in the Greek mentality, a change of mind was a change of your whole being. If it had been Hebrew uh, equivalent, it would have been a change of heart. Because the Hebrews believe the heart was the center of one's disposition. And that's the way we normally talk about it. So it's a change of your being. That's the New Testament word that's used for it. So Paul here is saying that godly grief, verse 10, produces metanoia. So if it's a godly grief, and there is grief. I've mentioned to you that repentance brings joy. That's on the other side. But there's a grief that attends repentance, that leads us to salvation, that leads us to uh, eternal life. And it's without regret. And then he says, worldly grief, verse 10, produces death. Now you say, I'm confused. Well, let's just take an example. What about Holy Week? You have several characters involved here. And uh, one of them would be Peter. Peter denies the Lord three times. And then as the Lord predicted, the cock crows, and Peter realizes, oh my, I've just done something. Surely Peter thought, I cannot possibly recover from this. I have publicly renounced my knowledge of Jesus at his most stressful moment in his life. I have completely denied Him and forsaken Him. I'm, I'm out of here. So you remember... After the resurrection, there's a lot of excitement. And then what does Peter do? He just goes fishing. Because Peter is excited about the resurrection, but he realizes, I got disqualified from doing anything meaningful a long time ago. You know, many, many days ago. But then he's out fishing, and Jesus comes out to see him. John chapter 21. Jesus is on the shore. Peter puts his outer garment on and jumps into the water, go figure, and, and then goes to the shore. And there, Jesus brings them around a charcoal fire. You remember? The only other place that word charcoal fire is used is in Luke's account where uh, Peter is around the charcoal fire when he denies Jesus three times. So now he's around a charcoal fire again. Same sort of setting. And then Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know all things, you know that I love you. And Jesus then says, then feed my sheep. Jesus is redeploying sinful failure, Peter. 
and giving Peter three opportunities to reaffirm his love for Jesus Christ. Complete healing. And then Jesus promises Peter in John 21, Peter, one of these days you're going to be taken where you don't want to go. Which is to say you're going to be martyred. And Peter was martyred. And what Jesus is promising him is that you are going to be faithful all the way until you are put to death for your faithfulness to me. So he assures Peter that he's going to persevere. I mean, what a day in Peter's life. Peter gets completely restored. So he has godly grief that leads to repentance because he draws near to the Lord Jesus and professes his love for him. He repents and it leads to salvation in Peter's life and a lot of other people's life. Now, by contrast, let's look at Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 coins of silver as predicted in the Old Testament. And Peter, I mean Judas also was very grief-stricken. He was very sorry over what he did. And then he goes and hangs himself. So this was uh, a worldly grief that Judas had. Peter had a godly grief. Now what's the difference? Judas was grieved over himself that he was such a failure. So he just destroyed himself. Peter grieved over how he had grieved his relationship with God and defamed the name of Jesus Christ in public. He was grieved with a God-centered grief. Judas was grieved with a self-centered grief that leads to destruction. That's probably your best comparison in the New Testament of two people who faced a similar situation in Jesus' most important moment in his life where they both failed and one led to glory and one led to total destruction. Paul is saying here, I see godly grief in your life. And we'll look why. Now look at the parallel that I've given you here between worldly grief and godly grief. Worldly grief leads to self-pity, which then leads to image management. So I'm sorry because poor me, I got found out. And now the answer is to manage my image. Maybe suicide is the way to manage your image. I'll show you. I won't let anybody else punish me. I'll just punish myself. And somehow that will vindicate me. Image management. And then you get a superficial change to manage the image. And that leads to death and God's judgment because God judges the heart, not your superficial image management manipulations. Now look at godly grief. It leads to a holy zeal. And that zeal leads to a heart engagement with God. That leads to true repentance, which leads to life, joy, salvation, eternal fellowship with God. You see the difference. Now one of the best ways to talk about repentance is to look at the theological summary that's provided in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87, what is repentance unto life? Follow this with me. Repentance unto life is, first of all, a saving grace. Now I want to say about six things about repentance here that are in this lesson of the Shorter Catechism. First of all, it's a saving grace. That is, it is a gift. You say, well, I thought repentance was something that I did, not something that God did. God doesn't need to repent. That's correct. God doesn't repent. But He gives you the gift of repentance. Remember, two sides, same coin, with faith. Faith is something you do. 
but it's something that God gives you. So when He gives you the new birth, a new heart, in that gift is the gift of faith and repentance so that the first thing that you do with your new birth is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from your sin. It's the first thing that you do when you're born again. Because with your new birth comes the gift of faith. So, yes, you must believe. You must repent. But if you do believe or if you do repent, it's simply because God gave you the gift of doing that. Now, you'll find that throughout the Scriptures. You, for, for example, Acts eleven eighteen, the Jewish Christians uh, are amazed that God has what? Granted repentance even to the Gentiles. Granted. Repentance. God gives repentance. The Jews knew that. That faith and repentance were gifts. But they thought the gifts only went to the Jews. No. Those gifts now are being given to the Gentiles in great number. And you find it, of course, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 with respect to faith. For it is by grace, through faith, that we've been saved. Yet this not of ourselves, Paul says, it is the gift of God. What's the gift of God? The faith by which we're saved is a gift. So remember that even what we do is because God gave it to us so that it's all of God. But because it's all of God, that doesn't mean we don't do anything. No, we do. We must do. We can't be saved without faith and repentance. And that is what we must do. But God gives it. Now, secondly, repentance unto life is a saving grace, a gift, whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin... True sense of his sin. What is the true sense of our sin? Well, mainly, there are other aspects of this, but I just want to point out the main sense that we get of our sin is that we have sinned, bless you, we have sinned against God alone. The true sense of sin is that we have sinned against God alone. Look, take take Psalm 51, verse 4. David has seduced Bathsheba with his great power as king. She goes to bed with him, becomes pregnant. David then has her husband murdered. Her husband is faithfully out there fighting David's battles. David's back home where he shouldn't be, looking out over the parapet of his balcony upon a naked woman and lusting after her. He should have been out there fighting. Uriah the Hittite, the Hittite, was fighting, And David sees to it that he gets killed in battle so that people don't know that he made Bathsheba pregnant. And everyone will say, oh, isn't it too bad? Uh, Uriah got killed in battle and he had impregnated his wife. Well, Nathan the prophet discloses this whole thing. says, David, you're the man. You're the sinner. Then David writes this Psalm 51. And what does he say in the Psalm? He says, against you and you only have I sinned. Speaking of the Lord. What do you mean God only? You sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against Uriah the Hittite, her husband. And you ultimately sinned against the child whose life was taken as judgment because you sinned. How can you say it's against God alone? Here's, here's the true sense of sin. My sin against you compared to my sin against Him makes my sin against you as though it's nothing because my sin against Him is an infinite sin because of His infinite glory. Lord, ultimately against you and you only have I sinned. Even my sin against my brothers and sisters has been a sin against God. There's the true sense of sin. You see, it's God-centered. 
It's a godly grief. I've sinned against the Lord who sent His Son to save me. And I've sinned against Him. There's the true sense of sin. It's a violation of our relationship with our Redeemer, our Creator, our Judge, our Savior. So that's what repentance does. It clarifies exactly what we have done in all of our sin against human beings as well as against God. It is against Him alone, ultimately. Now, it's also with, thirdly, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. You'll notice in Psalm 51 that David cries out for the mercy of the Lord. Before he even confesses what he, does, what he has done, he calls out for the mercy of the Lord. So realize that when I'm walking this way following evil, what turns my feet around is that I, turn, I look over my shoulder and I behold the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. In other words, I don't just turn from sin out of brute force. If I do... I'm going to turn like this and still be sinning. But for me to turn biblically and spiritually, I turn 180. And it's because I'm drawn to the mercy of God in Christ. So I can't possibly repent without faith. You see how they go together. I've got to be trusting in Christ to get out of this mess. And Christ becomes more beautiful to me than this illicit affair or this cheating mom income taxes, or this slandering of other people. Christ becomes more beautiful to me. And that's what causes me to turn. That's what the Westminster Divines are saying here, is that repentance is with an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. Otherwise, you cannot possibly repent. Now, you can turn over a new leaf. You can get rid of your alcohol. But if you don't repent toward Christ, you're going to get rid of your alcohol, and you're going to take on some other obsession. And so you just, instead of drinking alcohol, you go to your AA meetings. And you should. But if the AA meeting is only an obsession, you haven't repented. If the AA meetings are useful to turn you around this way, now you've repented. If you receive Christ, if you're not receiving Christ, you just have a new obsession. Instead of alcohol. And that's what turning over a new leaf is like with ungodly or personal, self-centered sorrow. It only leads to turning over a new leaf in your opinion. And it's a superficial change that doesn't fool God at all. But we, in real repentance, have an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. So I prefer Him over this sin. And that's the solution to that sin, is that Christ becomes more beautiful to me. He becomes better to me, more truthful to me, more rewarding to me than this thing going on over here, whatever it is. Now, fourthly, notice that I turn with an apprehension of mercy of God in Christ, but with grief and hatred of my sin. You notice in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord Adonai high and lifted up, and His train fills the temple, and the doorpost and the threshold shook with His glory. What's the first thing that Isaiah says? The first thing that the seraphs say is, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. But what's the first thing Isaiah says? Woe to me. In chapter 5 of Isaiah, he's been pronouncing woes on those who drink too much, those who have illicit affairs, those who uh, rip off the poor. He's got woes, curses for everybody. But when he beholds Christ high and lifted up, there's one woe on his mind. And he says, woe is me. 
There's one sinner he's aware of. It's himself. And he says, Woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have beheld the King, the Lord of hosts. And the Bible tells us, if you behold the King, you're dead. Because you're unholy and He's holy. And so Isaiah knows he's undone. Or literally falling apart at the seams, he says. So we have a sense uh, of the of the sense of our sin that leads us to grief and hatred of it. Isaiah, in that moment, hated his sin. That even his lips were unclean. He was a preacher, a prophet, and his lips were unclean. That's the first thing he mentioned as a preacher. I, I, I'm a man of unclean lips. How can I be a prophet and have a man, be a man of unclean lips? I'm undone. I'm completely disclosed now before the Lord. And then, of course, the Lord forgives him, doesn't He? He says, your sins are taken away, your transgressions atoned for. And then the Lord sends him as a man who's experienced real repentance and real trust in the forgiving provision that God makes for us, not our idea of covering ourselves with the fig leaves of our own performance and trying to cover up our sin with maybe some more good deeds. Maybe people will forget the bad stuff. That's so superficial. It's just crap. And God's not fooled by it. God wipes away by His work all of our sin. That's what the death on Calvary is all about. It's a complete, full atonement that works. And it gets, gets rid of all your sin. Now you can be in repentant state because He's been merciful to you. Now you can hate your sin. Truly, for the first time, you can grieve over and hate your sin because you're not hating yourself. Because you realize that God loves you yourself. He saved yourself. Now you can truly hate your sin without hating yourself. That's what the Westminster Divines is saying is indigenous to the very idea of repentance. Grief and hatred of our sin. So we don't turn away from our sin and say, hey, don't worry, boys, I'll be back tomorrow. None of that. No, we turn from it. We learn to despise what we're turning from. We grieve over what we're turning from. It becomes odious to us, and we cultivate that in our own minds. That's part of our spiritual duty, to hate what is displeasing to the Lord. And then notice, fifthly, that we turn from it. So we don't stay over here and say, you know, I hate all this sin that I'm doing and I'm going to do tomorrow. I just hate all this stuff. I, and I'm a terrible person. I just keep doing this stuff. And, and we think we're repenting because we can talk about how bad we are. Oh yeah, it's terrible. I mean, I've been involved in all this stuff over here and I just can't seem to break off this sin. And I know it displeases the Lord, but you know, every man's a man and business is business. And we just keep talking crap. So we claim that we have a grief and hatred of this stuff. And then we say hateful things about ourselves, how no good, awful, and terrible we are, which somehow in our minds justifies the fact that we're still doing, dealing with all this stuff. What do the Westminster divines say? Go back to the Hebrew word. Zip! Turn! We're going this way. We don't just turn. We turn and walk. We get away from it. There's a decisive turn in our will. So yes, it involves our minds, our change of mind. We can see this is evil. That's grace and good. And I want that. It involves our affections. Yes, I hate this. I love that. But it involves my will. I turn on it. And show it my back end. That's what repentance is. And you can see it. And no matter what people say and how awful they talk about sin and about even their own participation in it, until you see a turning, you don't have repentance. All you have is worldly sorrow. 
Judas believed that was awful to betray a man with 30 pieces of silver, blood money. It was terrible. And so he, he, there was no doubt Judas knew what was right and what was wrong, and he knew he was wrong. But he never turned from it. And he ended up killing himself because he hated himself. And then sixthly and lastly, with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. What does that mean? Okay, I turn and now start walking. There's a new obedience. I've got a new lifestyle. And however I got over there in the first place, whatever bridges I cross to get over there, I go blow up all those bridges. So I have a new obedience and I endeavor after a new obedience. I have no intention of going back. I make no provision for the flesh. I destroy as many of those pathways that I can figure out to get back there. Guys, this, this is what, you know, on your, on your computers, this is what Covenant Eyes is all about. Where you're, the sites you've been visiting are given to your godly brother to review on a regular basis. You're blowing up the bridges that get you back to pornography. Just blow them up. Or some, I mean, I know guys who have said, that's it, I'm not watching TV anymore. You know, HBO has wiped me out. And they just get rid of their whole TV. Well, or you can put a block on whatever sources of uh, wickedness are coming into your home. Just, you got to burn it up. That's what the Westminster Divines are saying. Real repentance has a resolve in it that you want to go this way, you are going this way, and you make no provision to go back. So burn it. Get rid of it. That's real repentance. And now, that brings unspeakable joy. Because what do you get when you burn all this stuff? You get Him. If you get rid of all your little adulteresses, all your little idols, you just get rid of them, what do you get back? Him. And your whole problem was that in your mind, Him wasn't enough. You had to have something else. That was your problem. You had not fully contemplated Him and how fully satisfying He is and how rich and wondrous His promises are to you. That you're not going to be stuck with the miseries that you're facing in this life. He's taking you somewhere. Trust Him. Walk with Him and burn the bridge to everything else. Now that's what Paul is saying repentance is. Now lastly, in our last four minutes, let's look at the last five verses, 12 through 16. Our repentance unites the church. Once again, we're coming back to this point. Your repentance is not ultimately about you. It's about two other things that are more important than you. Number one, your repentance is about the glory of God. When I turn and endeavor after a new obedience to Jesus Christ, I am making the clearest public profession that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all and that He is the full satisfaction for the human soul that I could possibly make. So I'm making a declaration with my, with my lifestyle, I'm making a declaration about the full sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And He is glorified as the only one who can satisfy a human soul. So the first thing that my repentance is about is about the glory of God. The second thing my repentance is about is because I honor the church. And then my life is corrupt. I'm corrupting all kinds of people around me. Gentlemen, I don't care what the sin is. Whether it's sexual or financial or relational. 
When you are participating in this unrepentantly, you don't make a clear declaration by the change of your lifestyle. You're wiping out scores of people around you. It's like leaven, Paul says. Get rid of the leaven. The leaven is contagious. It goes from you to one another. And I see it every week of my experience in the church. A person's unrepentant sin is quoted by somebody else, which then validates their sinful behavior. Of course, that's corrupt logic. I understand this. I'm just telling you that I contribute to the corrupt logic when I don't repent. I'm giving some other weak brother an excuse to do something in his life that's going to destroy him too. And don't think for a moment you're living on an island. You are affecting a lot of other people. It's amazing to me how how we as men can be almost completely ignorant of the effect of our lives upon our children and our grandchildren when we obsess on something that we want. It's unbelievable to me. You can spend your life rearing these kids and then, and then look at you. You, just, you want something, so you go do it. You ruin your reputation. You ruin their... their um, you know, I'm Wilson with two L's. I have an interest on getting that name down to the next generation without screwing it up. Now, I've, I've done some things that could have screwed it up, but I don't want to screw it up anymore. And I'd rather die and pass down a name that's an embarrassment to my children. Come on now. Uh, this, that's just an illustration of how this works. It's the same in your church. You take your whole church down with you when you're unrepentant. First of all, it unites the church because we realize the true issue. The true issue, Paul says, is not the guy who sinned. It's not the guy against whom he sinned. It's about all of y'all and your earnestness. So, when you are unrepentant, it's not ultimately about you. It's about the church and how they're going to respond. And they better respond. Because it's really about their response. Secondly, we are comforted. The whole church is comforted when we, re- when we repent. Paul says, therefore, we are comforted, verse 13. And then verses 14, 15, number three, we boast in each other. There's a boasting in the church. It's not, <coughs> hey, look at me, I'm a Christian. It's, hey, look at Christ. He took a lousy sinner like me and you know, gave me life and hope and joy. So we boast in our salvation, which is another way of boasting in Christ. Paul says, may I never boast about anything except the cross of Christ through which the world became crucified to me and I to the world. He was boasting in his sanctification because of what the cross had done in his life. So we can boast about what God is doing in the church if there's repentance. If there's not repentance, we take the boast away. We're no different from anybody else who's just doing exactly what they want to do when they want to do it. Fourthly, we regain our confidence in each other. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. We can trust each other as family. Otherwise, we lose our sense of each other's salvation. We've had folks who walk away from their family obligations because they're tired of their family. When they do that, we lose confidence that they're a brother. When they repent, we gain our confidence that they're a brother. And Paul says, we now have perfect confidence in you. That's an important thing for us to be able to trust each other as real brothers. And our repentance does that for us. You can see how it builds the body of Christ and empowers us to go out into the world as repentant messengers of repentance. You can't give away what you don't have. You can't preach repentance if you're not doing it. Repent and be baptized to every one of you. And now, 
Go into all the world and make disciples, repentant disciples. The way you show them how to live is answering the question, tell me, what do you do? And your answer needs to be a repentant answer. This is what I do. And God is calling you to follow Him and do the same. That's when we have confidence that we're Christ church ministering to the world. Let us pray. Father, thank You for the gift of repentance by which we can draw near to You and enjoy You. Thank You for these men and for many here who have been in repentant lifestyle for decades and who've been demonstrating over and over again that we belong to You and that You are sufficient for all of our desires. Help us, Lord, in the midst of our belief uh, and unbelief to repent so that we believe more and more and we repent more and more so that You gain more and more glory from the days of our lives on this earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.